Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we have launched upon an expedition through the Bible in which I am seeking to preach one sermon for each book of the Bible. And the goal is to track the great plan and program of God through the ages and stages of redemptive history. You see, history had a beginning. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And history will have an end point which is determined by God. And every step between the beginning and the end is orchestrated by an all-wise, all-powerful, sovereign, and gracious God. I trust that the result of this expedition through the Bible will leave us with a breathtaking panoramic display of the wisdom, power, and glory of God. And you will be convinced more than ever that this book could not have been conceived by men. Only a divine mind could have come up with this plan and worked it through the centuries. Well, we're taking as our operating theme that the main point of the Bible is the kingdom of God. I think that's right. The kingdom of God understood as God's people in God's place and presence under God's rule and blessing. Now, we found that a pivotal person in the plan of God is Abraham. After God has worked with the human race for a couple thousand years, he zeroes in on this particular man and enters into covenant with him, a covenant that will basically frame the rest of human history. God's covenant with Abraham promises him three things. I'm going to make out of you a great nation. I'm going to give you or that nation a land. And then eventually, Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That, of course, will be through the one who is born from the nation of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have seen that God has set his people free from bondage in Egypt in Sinai, at Sinai, entered into covenant with them, giving them the Ten Commandments, and at that point they became a nation, God's nation. Because God is a holy God, we saw last week from Leviticus, that we asked the question, how can a holy God dwell with any people who are sinful? And the book of Leviticus answers it in these ways. In order for a holy God to dwell with people, they need to be a holy people. That involved three things. They need the forgiveness of their sins, which we call expiation. And so God sets up an elaborate system of animal sacrifices. They need a mediator, and that's mediation, and God set up the priesthood. They also need to be holy in their daily lives, and so we call that consecration. And so God gives in the book of Leviticus detailed instructions as to how they are to be holy at every turn, turning away from what is unclean and pursuing only that which is clean. Now, as we come to the book of Numbers this morning, it does move the ball forward slightly. It tells of the preparation for Israel to enter into the land which was promised. God promised to make them a nation, Abraham a nation, they become a nation. Now the next promise to fulfill is they need to be given a land. And in Numbers, we see the beginning preparation for Israel to enter the land. But the dominant theme of Numbers comes to be the failure of to enter the land of Egypt in a timely way because of their unbelief and rebellion, which leads to a 40-year wandering in the wilderness. Now, by way of introduction to Numbers, the Hebrew title for the book is 
Bemidbar, which is translated in the wilderness. And that's appropriate because we're dealing with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now, where do we get the name Numbers? Why do we call it Numbers? Because in the Greek translation, uh, the Greek title for the book uh, from the Septuagint is arithmoi, the Greek word for numbers. You recognize children that you get the word arithmetic from that, right? And so we call it the book of numbers. And that's appropriate because there are a number of censuses taken in the book of numbers. In chapter one, the men who go to war are numbered. Again, in chapter 26, and a, num a few other numberings of people are given in the book of numbers. And so we call it the book of numbers. Let's consider first a... Uh, first point, preparation for entering the promised land. We find this mainly in the first 10 chapters. There is some military preparation for entering the land. The covenant has been made with the people of Israel. The land has been promised. And now there's some military preparation. And so in chapter 1, there's a census of all the men who are able to go to war from 20 years and upward. And each tribe is contributing certain number of men. One tribe, 46,500, another 59,300, another 45,650. The total number of men in Israel prepared to go to war when they came into the land of Canaan was 603,500. And so we see that God is a God of means. If you're going to conquer a land, it makes sense that you have a military force to come in and conquer the land. But dear friends, the focus is not so much at all on the military preparation for entering the land, but rather what we look to next, the spiritual preparation. You see, the main strength of Israel is not to be its fighting force. Their real strength was going to be the presence of God with them. Remember that the presence of God is symbolized or manifested to them in the tabernacle. And the word tabernacle shows up 32 times in the book of Numbers, second only to Exodus when the tabernacle was built. The synonym for the tabernacle, tent of meeting, comes up 54 times in the book of Numbers, only 33 in Exodus and 41 in Leviticus. So the temple is a focus of the book of Numbers because that's where God manifested his presence. And we note that the emphasis in these first 10 chapters is on spiritual preparation to enter the land. At the end of chapter 1, after numbering the men who are prepared to go to war, we are told that the tribe of Levi has been exempted from military service. Why? Because the Lord has chosen them to be in charge of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was placed in the middle of the camp, the various 12 tribes were positioned around the camp, three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. But most immediately around the tabernacle were the Levites who were put in charge of caring for the tabernacle. The reason for this is that no layman other than a Levite were to, was to come near because as it says in chapter 1, verse 51, and twice in chapter 3, the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Again, we are reminded of what we saw in Leviticus, that God is an unapproachably holy God, and his presence needed to be handled very carefully, so only the Levites were able to draw near to the place of God's manifest presence, the tabernacle. There's another reminder given in chapter 3 of the two sons of Aaron, 
who you remember from Leviticus chapter 10. They brought strange fire before the Lord. They sought to worship him in a way he had not commanded, and they were struck dead. And so we're being reminded again in, in Numbers that, that God is a holy God. In chapter 4, the care of the tabernacle is detailed. Three of the descendants of Levi are assigned different roles in caring for the tabernacle, which, of course, was a, a, a mobile edifice. It needed to be packed up and, and travel. And so the sons of Gershon were to take care of the tent, the covering, the screen, the, the hangings. The sons of Kohath, the Kohathites, were to take care of the furniture in the tabernacle, the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the utensils, and then... Third group, the sons of Merari, were take, to take care of the frames, the bars, the pillars, and the sockets. Very detailed instruction about caring for and transporting the tabernacle. Why? Because that was the place of God's manifest presence. Further spiritual preparation is seen in chapters 5 and 6, where it is stressed that unclean lepers needed to stay outside the camp, Chapter 5 also gives us a test for adultery. If a man suspects his wife committing, has committed adultery, take her to the priest, and there's a whole procedure to go, for, go through to determine whether she was guilty of that. There's also, in chapter 6 of Numbers, instructions for the, the Nazarite, the Nazarite vow. You remember that Samson was a Nazarite, and the Nazarite vow involved abstaining from wine and touching a dead body and, and involved not cutting his hair. And so there's instruction about the Nazarite vow. God reveals that he wants to be a blessing to his people. As he sends them out to enter the promised land, God's desire is that he, they be blessed. And so these words of benediction or blessing are put in the mouth of Aaron, the high priest. At the end of chapter 6, we read the Lord, this is the the ironic or priestly blessing upon the people, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they, the priests, shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I then will bless them. God wants to bless his people. He's made them a nation. Now he wants to bless them by giving them the land. Chapter 7 to 10 further shows God's concern for his holy presence among them. The tabernacle is anointed by Moses, and uh, all the tribes make generous donations through their leaders to the altar of the tabernacle. The Levites go through a ceremony of cleansing and atonement, consecrating them to make them worthy to minister in the tabernacle. Not only were the Israelites to be a holy people, they were to be an obedient people if they were to know the blessing of God. And so in chapter 9, verse 15, we read, Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony, and in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. God's presence was shown by a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, and they needed to follow that pillar. Verse 22, whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. So they're headed, they're going to head for the promised land. God's going to give them that land. He has promised it to them. 
but they need to be a holy people and they need to be an obedient people. And then we read in chapter 10, verse 11, they're going to leave from Sinai. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. So they moved out for the first time according to the command of the Lord through Moses. Interesting, it says the standard of the camp at the sons of the sons of Judah set out first. That's interesting prophetically, isn't it? The, the tribe of Judah was to lead them. Of course, Jesus would be from the tribe of Judah. So after establishing the covenant at Mount Sinai, they are finally moving from Sinai toward the land that God has promised to give them. That's chapter 10. Israel's finally on the move. But as we come into chapter 11, a theme emerges that becomes the dominant theme in the entire history of Israel. And so we move from what I call uh, preparation for entering the promised land to what I'm calling prevention from entering the promised land and a pattern established. God is with them. God wants to bless them. And so long as they reverence his holiness, so long as they obey him, the covenant people can expect God's blessing. They can expect that they will be able to conquer the promised land as God had promised through Abraham. But what do we find as we come into Numbers 11? Soon after they leave Sinai, we see first greedy rejection of the Lord's provision. Look at chapter 11. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taborah, which means burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics, but now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Soon after they leave Sinai, headed for the promised land, what are they doing? They're grumbling and complaining. They're rejecting the Lord's provision. What does God do? He says through Moses, okay, I'm going to provide what they want. I'm going to provide them quails. And he gives them an abundance of quails to gather and to eat. But we read in verse 33 of Numbers 11, while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very severe plague. And people died. Coming to chapter 12, right after that, and we see jealous opposition to the Lord's servant, Moses. The first two verses of chapter 12, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Even Miriam and Aaron, the brother and sister of Moses, are now opposing him and his leadership. What does God do? Well, the Lord comes down in a pillar of cloud, and he addresses Aaron and Miriam, and he basically vindicates Moses. He says, Moses, my servant, is no ordinary prophet. 
With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And because of her rebellious attitude, Miriam is struck, strick, stricken with leprosy and has to remain outside the camp for seven days. What do we see when we come into chapter 13, which is a pivotal turning point in the narrative? The first two verses of Numbers 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. They're getting close to the promised land. So Moses is directed to send spies into the land, one representative from each of the 12 tribes. They go in for 40 days, they spy out the land, and what do they find? They report that it's exactly as God had promised. They said that um, it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They brought back some of the fruit, and exactly as God promised, that's, that's what's there. But 10 of the 12 uh, leaders, as you know, brought back a bad report. There are giants in the land. Their cities are fortified. And as a result, look at the impact that report had on the people in chapter 14 as they come back after 40 days. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And so the people got stirred up. They were unwilling to believe God because of the report of the 10 spies. But two of them came with a different report, as you know. Caleb and Joshua brought a good report and encouraged them to take God at his word. And so we read in verse 8, if, I think these are the words of Caleb, if the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But then we read all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And the glory of the Lord again appears, and you can imagine God is again angry with his people, and this is the pivotal moment where he pronounces on them the judgment that that generation will not enter the land but will wander for 40 years until all of them from age 20 and up die off. And so we read in 1434 and 35, God's judgment upon them. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days, for every day you shall bear your guilt a year, 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil generation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. What should have taken a couple of weeks to enter the land will take 40 years because of their unbelief. Were they humbled by this? It's amazing what we read after this. 
Picking up at verse 439, when Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel, the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up early and, and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are, we, we have indeed sinned, but, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. Yeah, God has pronounced judgment upon us, but we're going to ignore that. We're, we're going to go up and take the land anyway. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord? When it will not succeed, do not go up where you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. But we read in verse 44, they went up heedlessly. They ignored Moses' warning. But the Ark of the Covenant and Moses did not leave the camp. And as Moses predicted, the Amalekites and the Canaanites struck them down and beat them down. And so even after being given that judgment, they presumptuously defy the Lord's judgment. And we're not done with this sad story. Chapter after chapter, we come to chapter 16, and we read these words. Now Korah, the son of Itzar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. They assembled together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? I'm calling that egalitarian rebellion against the Lord's authority structure. God had appointed Aaron and Moses. And these men come up and said, hey, we're all equal. Who do you think you are in exalting yourself above us? Well, what happens? We read in verse 23 of chapter 16. But they fell on their faces. And uh, I'm sorry, that's not right. Uh, we read in um, 23. Yes. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And then reading in verse 31, As he finished speaking all these words, the ground, was, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up in their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol, that's the grave, and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And verse 35 says, fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. You get the picture? Korah, Dathan, and Byram challenged the authority of Moses and Aaron, say, who do you think you are? We're all equal. Well, God's going to answer. And God says to the people, get back from around them. And God opens the earth, and it swallows those rebels alive. And then the 250 are struck down with fire from heaven. God is, again, making a point about who is in charge. But then we read of the amazing blindness of the people. After that happens, we read in verse 41, but on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. Imagine that. The earth had opened up and swallowed the people. Fire came down from heaven and killed 250 people. 
And they said, Aaron and Moses, you're responsible for that. They didn't open the earth. They didn't send fire from heaven. The people are so spiritually blind that they blame Aaron and Moses. And this becomes this rebellion, this grumbling, this complaining, this this rejection of God and his leaders becomes a constant refrain. In chapter 20, we read of Miriam dying and another occasion of rebellion. In chapter 20, verse 2, there was no water for the congregation and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why then have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die here? Why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, for there is no water to drink. God responds and says to Moses, Okay, give them water. I want you to speak to the rock. Now, that was the occasion where instead of speaking to the rock, Moses struck the rock, and God actually judged Moses and said, as a result of not treating me as holy, you yourself will not be allowed to go into the promised land. So, as the people march from Sinai toward the land promised to them by God to conquer it in the power of God, this theme emerges, which will frankly characterize Israel throughout their subsequent history. They are a grumbling, ungrateful, rebellious, unbelieving, insubordinate, unsubmissive people. Really, Israel is a flock of unconverted people, religious but lost people. And so we see they're prevented from going into the land which God had promised because of their unbelief and their rebellion. But let's see briefly the preservation of the promise. The rebellion, the repeated rebellion of the people of Israel is astounding, isn't it? When you reflect upon all that God had done for them, imagine a million and a half people going dry-shod through the sea with walls of water on either side, and then they get to the other side, and God causes the water to crash down upon the Egyptian chariots, 600 of them, and their bloated bodies wash up on the shore. This is how much God cares for us, and this is what God thinks of our enemies. All that God has shown them by manifesting his presence in the tabernacle, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, supernaturally leading them. And what do they do? Nothing but grumble, complain, rebel, and reject. It's nothing less than unbelief. But if that is amazing and astounding, even more amazing is the patience and grace of the Lord. How often... On these occasions of rebellion, the Lord was inflamed with anger and threatened to destroy the people, and he would have, but for the intercessions of Moses. But because of God's great mercy and grace and fidelity to his promise, the disobedient and judged wilderness generation would not be the last word. The promise of the land was not canceled. Theologian Tom Schreiner says, the last section of Numbers, chapters 21 to 36, reveals that a corner has been turned. A new day in which Israel would enter the land was coming. Hence, Israel conquered Arad, Sion, and Og, 
and was on the move to Canaan in fulfillment of the promise. However, it is not to say that the fundamental problem with Israel was removed. And here is yet another occasion. Even after they begin to, to conquer some Canaanite people, they're still rebelling. And in chapter 21, we read, and I, I bring it up for a significant reason, they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Again, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of Israel died. Why do I bring this up? Because of its significance in the New Testament. When they're being bitten by poisonous serpents, God says, and Moses cries out to God, God says, put a brass or bronze serpent on a pole and tell the people that if they will but look in faith to that bronze serpent, they will be healed. Well, as you know, Jesus picks up on that in John chapter 3. And he says, as that serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, so that if we look to him, we will be healed of a far more serious consequence than dying from snake bite. So, chapters 22 to 24, I have to mention, are occupied with this prophet Balaam. You remember reading about Balaam. One of the Canaanite nations, uh, Moab, with its king Balak, knew the people of Israel were coming. They knew that God was with them, and they feared. So Balak, the king, hires Balaam, a prophet, to curse Israel. And Balaam wanted to curse Israel. How do we know? Because we're told in 2 Peter 2.15 that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. He really wanted to get paid for cursing Israel, but God did not allow him to curse Israel. He was forced to prophesy whatever God put in his mouth. Verse 5 of chapter 23, Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and you shall speak thus. And here are some of the prophetic words that Balaam speaks. Though Balak wanted him to curse Israel, though he wanted to curse Israel, he could do nothing but bless Israel. And listen to some of the blessings in chapter 23, verse 10. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Huh, he's prophesying that as Abraham was promised, your people are going to be like the dust of the earth. And Balaam reinforces that promise. In chapter 22 and following, another prophetic word from Balaam, God brings them, Israel, out of Egypt. He is for them like the horns of the wild ox, for there is no omen against Jacob, nor is there any divination against Israel. At the proper time, it shall be said to Jacob and to Israel what God has done. Behold, a people rises like a light rises like a lioness, and as a lion it lifts itself, it will lie down, not lie down until it devours the prey. It's going to be victorious over, its, over the, the nations of Canaan. And then there's also a prophecy of a coming king. In verses 17 to 19, another part of Balaam's prophecy, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. He's actually looking ahead 
to Jesus Christ. He says it's not going to happen soon, but it's going to happen in the future. Well, Israel is still not done with its idolatry in chapter 25. They mix it up with the daughters of Moab, and they are involved in idolatry and sexual immorality with the Midianite women. And on one occasion, a, an Israelite brings a, is brash to bring a Midianite woman into his tent, and a certain man, Phineas, comes and pierces them both through with a spear, and that stops the plague that God had begun to bring upon them, but not before 24,000 Israelites died. Well, in chapter 26, there's a new census taken. The original warriors had died off. A new census of men who were going to go to war is taken, about the same number as the original number. Other preparations are made for the coming into the land. Um, inheritances are, are parceled out. There are cities of refuge that are planned. They're given instructions as to how they're to destroy the symbols of idolatrous worship in the land of Canaan. So Numbers ends after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of their stubborn unbelief. And here is Israel on the banks of the Jordan, ready to go in to conquer the land, which they will do not under Moses' leadership, but under Joshua. And with that, the book of Numbers ends. Let's take a few minutes, though, and make some applications from the book of Numbers. First, and maybe foremost, God provides us with a profile of the lost, unbelieving heart. Don't we have a clear picture from the behavior of the Israelites of unbelief, the unbelieving heart? And let me, let me describe that in several ways. The lost, unbelieving heart does not believe the gospel. Hebrews 4 picks up on this and says, just as they had good news preached to them, but it did them no good because they did not receive it. And he's referring to this generation. They had good news of the promise of the land given to them, but it did them no good because they didn't believe it. So the writer to the Hebrews is applying that to new covenant professing Christians and saying, same thing with you. You have had good news preached to you, the good news of the gospel. But if you don't believe it and hold on to it, it will do you no good. Lost, the lost, unbelieving heart does not believe the gospel. The lost, unbelieving heart is ungrateful. Do we see that? Don't we see that with the Israelites? They were not content with the manna, but they grumbled and they were greedy for other food. It is typical of the unbelieving heart to be ungrateful. Isn't it interesting in Romans 1.21, where God refers to those who know God by general revelation, he says this, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. It is characteristic of the unbelieving heart to be ungrateful, to be unthankful to God. They're not satisfied with their spouse. They're not satisfied with their house. They're not satisfied with their job, with their income, with the circumstances of their lives. And let me just say to you men, pornography is a massive display of ingratitude to God. Through Ezekiel, God says, your wife is to be the sole desire of your eyes. And when you indulge in pornography, you are displaying, especially if you are a married man, 
tremendous ingratitude and unthankfulness to God, who has given you a wife in your youth. But ingratitude is a mark of unbelievers, and it certainly characterized the people of Israel, constantly grumbling and complaining. Further, the lost unbelieving heart, as seen in Israel, rebels against God's authority. Did we not see that? Korah, Nathan, and Abiram coming against Moses and Aaron. Who do you think you are? We're all equal. Who do you think you are? Exalting yourself above the people. You have gone far enough for all the congregation are holy, every one of them. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Friends, isn't that true of unbelievers to this day? They rebel against God's authority, and we are seeing it in our day. Unbelievers don't like the fact that God created only two genders, male and female. And they say, we're going to multiply genders. I don't care what God says. Unbelievers don't like the fact that God has ordained marriage only between a man and a woman. They say, we're going to reject that. We're going to have a man married to a man and a woman married to a woman. We're rejecting God's authority in that matter. Unbelievers don't like the fact that God has reserved human sexual intimacy for the covenant relationship of marriage, and they thumb their nose at that and say, I'll sleep with anyone I want whenever I want. Unbelievers do not like the fact that God has ordained the husband to be the head of his wife and only men to be pastors and leaders in the church. And so we have this egalitarian spirit. It's a mark of unbelief. Further, the lost, unbelieving heart defies God's judgments. God had just said, because of your unbelief and rebellion, you're going to wander 40 years until this entire generation dies in the wilderness. The next day, the people said, oh, no, 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 we're going to go up in the land. Moses said, don't go. It won't work. God's not going to be with you. You'll be beaten down. They heedlessly went up anyway, and they got beaten down by the Canaanites. Don't we see unbelievers doing that today? Their heart defying and denying God's judgments. We plead with our unbelieving family members and friends and say, there's only one way to God. And apart from Jesus Christ, you will be lost and you will spend eternity in hell. And people laugh at that. They mock at that. They ignore that. They think they can defy God's judgment and get away with it. Further, the lost unbelieving heart irrationally blame shifts. The earth swallows up Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Fire comes down from heaven, clearly from God, and kills 250 people. And the people turn around and say, Moses and Aaron, it's your fault. It's your fault. Unbelieving people have a problem with blame shifting. They don't know how to place blame responsibly. One of the manifestations today is our society is so racialized, isn't it? I mean, everything has a racial component. That was racism. That was racism. That was racism. When race had oftentimes nothing to do with it, where's that coming from? It's coming from the Marxist ideology of critical race theory, and it fits the narrative. And so we blame it on race, and it's misguided. Unbelievers don't know where to place blame responsibly, and they certainly don't want to take it upon themselves. And finally, the lost unbelieving heart is an idolatrous heart. Israel committed idolatry with the gods of the Moabites, 
Chapter 25, verse 2, For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, and it involved them in sexual immorality. Every lost person is an idolater, but guess what? Every one of us was once an idolater, right? The words that Paul directed to the Thessalonians when he said that you, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, that was true of every one of us, wasn't it? An idol is anything we love, trust, and obey more than we love, trust, and obey God. And every one of us was an idolater, and only the grace of God caused us to differ and to be delivered from it. But the lost, unbelieving heart is an idolatrous heart. They love, trust, and obey something other than the only living and true God. But the lesson, so Israel in the wilderness, and frankly throughout its history, is a profile in lostness and unbelief. Now, thankfully, that was not true of, all, of everyone. It wasn't true of Caleb. It wasn't true of, of Joshua, right? And throughout Israel's history, there's always been a remnant. There's always been the circumcised of heart, the Israel within Israel. But the mass of Israelites, beginning there from Sinai, were unbelievers, rebellious unbelievers. But the lesson is this. It's not enough to be outwardly religious. It's not enough to go through, because they were religious people. They were technically God's people. But it's not enough to go through the motions of attending church, living an outwardly moral life, paying lip service to hymns, listening to sermons. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 talks about these experiences in the book of Numbers and Exodus as a challenge to professing Christians. Listen, I've got to read this passage, 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. That's the generation we're talking about. And all ate the same spiritual food, <clears throat> and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. That's what we just read about, right? Now, these things happened as examples for us, New Covenant Christians, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did in 23,000 fell in one day, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. He can't say this is just irrelevant. This is, these are a bunch of unbelievers. Yes, but he's challenging a new covenant church and saying, examine yourself. Don't think you stand. Do any of these things characterize you? You may be a professing Christian, but are you just a Christian in name? Do you really know God? Do you really love God? Or are you really like those Israelites, a mass of unbelievers? So that's certainly the first application, a profile of the unbelieving heart. But more briefly, Numbers certainly provides us with a portrait of God. How? Well, again, we see the awesome holiness of God. 
how God demands reverence and demands obedience, how many times when there's rebellion and grumbling, he shows up at the tent of meeting, meeting and he is angry. How many times he threatens to destroy the people and would have but for the intercessory prayers of Moses. God continues to present himself as a consuming fire of holiness. But we also see the incredible patience of God, how merciful God was not to destroy the people, but to bear with them. Romans 10.21 uses this language taken from Isaiah 65. God speaking, but as for Israel, he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And that began back then. How amazing is the patience of God and the amazing fidelity of God to his promises. Although they rebelled and had to wander for 40 years, he did not renege on his promise. He told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land, and he would yet make good on that promise. Despite their rebellion, despite their unbelief, God would be faithful to his promise. And so we see the fidelity of God to his promises. And that says to us, Christian, that the promises that are yet to be fulfilled for us will be fulfilled because God will be good, make good on his promise. In fact, the language is even put in Balaam's mouth as part of his prophecy. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said it and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? What are some of the promises he has given to us? Jesus promised in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish. That's a promise you can go to the heavenly bank on. If you're a sheep, if you're Christ's, you will never perish. He will preserve you to the end. John 14, 3, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. That has not been fulfilled for us yet, but you can count on it. Wherever Jesus Christ is, every believer here will one day be there because he promised it and he can't lie. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. Through the darkest time, the darkest tunnel of your life in the shadow of death, he will not leave you or forsake you. He will be with you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right after the passage I read, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Never say, I had to sin because there was no way of escape. There's always a way of escape. God promises it. In Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Whether we see it all in this life, everything, everything that has happened and will happen to you will work together for good. God promises it, and it must be so. And then finally, do we see Jesus in the book of Numbers? Well, yes, in several places, but I highlight only one. In Numbers 21, when the people were being bitten by serpents because they were complaining and grumbling and the serpents were dying, God said to Moses, put a bronze serpent up on a pole and tell the people if they will look to that bronze serpent, they will be healed. I'm sure there were some who, who did. Others said, ah, why, why do that? We've got a home remedy that's better. 
we've got snake bite medicine that we'll take care of it ourselves. We don't need to do what God says. But only those who look to the bronze serpent were healed. As you know, Jesus picked up on that in John 3, talking to Nicodemus. And he said, as Moses was lift, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. There's the gospel. We're threatened with a far worse um, consequence than dying from a snake bite. We are threatened with eternal separation from God in hell. But the simple message of the gospel is if you will just look to Jesus and transfer your faith and trust from everything else and put it solely and squarely on him and in him, you will be forgiven of all your sins now and into all eternity. Yes, Jesus is in the book of Numbers. He's the antitype of the brass serpent by which they looked and lived. And if you're outside of Christ, I say to you again, look to Jesus and live. He will give you life. Let's pray and sing a final hymn. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your holiness. Thank you for your fiery wrath. But thank you as well for your great patience with your people, your great love and grace and mercy. Thank you for your faithfulness to all your promises. And we believe them, even the ones that are not yet fulfilled in our lives. You cannot lie, and we believe you. Thank you, in Jesus' name.